Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, for 25 years partnering with donors and nonprofits and communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships. On the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're a collaboration with University of Maine Cooperative Extension who supports the production and broadcast of uh, Talk of the Towns. I'm your host, Ron Beard. This morning we'll be talking about uh, looking back and looking ahead, Maine towns and the legislature. And I'm delighted to have some guests in the studio with us who can help us with that topic. Um, they are Representative Chris Rector from Thomason. Welcome to you, Chris. Thank you, Ron. It's nice to be here. Senator Christine Savage is here from Union. Welcome. Thank you, Ron. And Representative Ted Kaufman, uh, Kaufman of Bar Harbor, welcome back to Talk of the Towns, Ted. Glad to be here with my colleagues. Great, great. Well, um, this morning we thought we'd, um, as we often do um, this time of year, look back at the legislature and see some of the, the impacts that um, the legislature um, might have had on, on, uh, on towns in Maine, um, kind of a long history of, of a connection between um, what the state government does and what individual towns do. Um, each of you have um, some perspectives on that, but uh, Senator Savage, you've got an interesting one because you um, operate in both worlds. You operate um, uh, and as an interim town manager right now, but you've served as a town manager. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in both local government and then state government. My time in uh, local government goes way back, Ron. Mm -hmm. I've, uh, I, was, um, I was employed by the town of Camden for 16 years. The last year that I, I did every position in, in the town, <laughs> except for assessor and CEO. <laughs> um, in my last year, I served as uh, acting town manager while they were in the process of hiring a new manager. Was going to retire. Um, got a call from some friends in Warren that they had lost their town manager and they were hiring, would I please apply? Um, so rather than hiring, I went over to Warren as town manager, and I served there for about five and a half years and um, was um, encouraged to run for legislature, which I did. Um, people in Warren were a little concerned because things had stabilized there with me at the helm, and, um, <clears throat> but I assured them that I would make sure that they were in good hands, which I did. And I went into legislature, and that's and now for the rest of the story. <laughs> I've been there now. Uh, this is my fourteenth year. Right, wow. right. Yeah. And you've moved from the House of Representatives to the Senate. I did. Right. I served three terms in the House, and then the Senate seat opened, and ran for that, and was elected, and have been reelected, and now have finished and finished my fourth and final term. Right. And um, before legislature had adjourned, <laughs> I had a call that uh, we. We're losing our town manager in Union, my hometown. Would I please fill in as acting town manager in Union while they were in the hiring process again? So that's what I'm doing now. Right, right. <laughs> the rewards have been effective, I think. <laughs> yes, I guess. Indeed. What were some of the issues um, that you dealt with as a town manager? For instance, in Warren, you were there the longest period of time as a town manager. What were some of the issues that you remember that the town was dealing with at that point? Well, when I went to Warren... Um, I'm going to tell you this is an interesting story because they had um, they had had uh, ten town managers in eleven years. Oh my goodness! 
So my my job was to um, be an effective town manager who could do the day-to-day process, and uh, it, it worked well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, basically it's probably typical of most towns that their, uh, their highway systems, their road systems, that's the biggest uh, fund uh, there is the highway fund, um, same as it is for the state. Um, those were big issues. We had had some roads that the state had turned over to the town, uh, and they had to be they turned them over in poor condition, and we had to address those. Mm. And that mm. probably led, in some ways, to your position on the transportation committee. You're right; it did. <laughs> my because one of my hats I wore as town manager in Warren was as road commissioner, and mm. I and I did I was involved. It wasn't just in name only. I I was involved. In, in decisions. Mm, mm. Well, we'll come back to you in a minute and Thank learn you. more about that, uh, that uh, role in the Senate. Um, Representative uh, Chris Rector from Thomaston, give us a little bit of your background. I think you've got a, a, a small business background, but interested in lots of different things, including um, uh, one flag, many campuses. Many, many, many flags, flags, one, one campus. campus. Right, yes, I'm sorry. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks, Ron. Indeed, my background is in small business. My wife and I have been in business uh, as retailers for 31 years, and um, we're in the gallery business for uh, for about 20 of those years, and in the ice cream business for 19 years, uh, some of those years concurrent, and we're also in the publishing business, and we've been doing that for uh, probably 15, 16 years. We have a little art publishing business and distribute note cards around uh, the Northeast and other art-related products. So I've got my, my mm. finger in several different pies, which um, I think suits my personality. I don't want to be too focused on any, uh, on any one thing. Uh, I, and I ended up sort of coming to the legislature because I was involved in, um, in lobbying the Appropriations Committee to uh, be certain that there was money to demolish the main state prison. After mm. we studied that issue in town as a community group and discovered that there really were no adaptive reuses of that facility. And I, I enjoyed the process so much. And I liked the legislators that I spoke with so much uh, that have now become my colleagues that I really, I said, I think I'd like to try mm-hmm. and run for, run for office and then was fortunate to be successful and I've served, uh, served three terms there. Um, it, it's an amazing place to be and it's an amazing opportunity to be a generalist and a specialist and mm-hmm. I think that appeals to me. Uh, you get to travel the state and learn about a host of issues and that's really essential. You need to know something about highways. You need to know something about health care. You need to know something about education. But then you end up sort of finding where your focus is and uh, really delving into that in some depth. And uh, in order to be effective, you have to uh, you have to know your subject. In my case, I've served on the Business Research and Economic Development Committee, and I've learned a tremendous amount about our economic development programs, about how we operate, both in a in a micro sense, you know, in a, in a local and regional sense, and then in a statewide and uh, national and international sense. And that's been uh, a delight for me, and really, uh, you know, just incredibly stimulating every day. Mm. Do you do you think that Maine is poised to be successful in the business world? I. Honestly, I believe our best days are ahead of us. And I know mm-hmm. that's uh, – it, it's in some cases hard to believe because Maine was enormously successful. You know, I come from Thomaston. Thomaston back in the 1840s and 1850s had three of the seven millionaires in the United States living there. I live on Knox Street and across the street from my home is a house that was owned by the richest man in the United States mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's because we were internationally connected. Mm-hmm. You know, we worry about globalism, but the truth is we've been global traders and uh, involved in a global economy 
in the mid-coast area for hundreds of years. It really is our roots. And so I think we just have to figure out what our adaptive place mm. is in the 21st century and then be sure we're fulfilling that role as completely as we can. Mm. And your belief is, uh, because I've worked with you in the past, that education um, <coughs> at many different levels is really a key to that and your work um, in the Thomason areas is part of that. That's right. It's really it's really the root. And I um, I guess I knew that instinctively, but I, I wasn't aware of just how essential that was for us. We uh, geographically are very distant from particularly community college access. And we all know that that's both uh, very inexpensive in terms of the quality of the education you get, and it's an entry point for a lot of folks who may not otherwise think about post-secondary education or think about changing careers and need uh, right. need to uh, come up with some additional training. So our effort has been to bring a collaboration of the community college, the university system, our regional vocational school, We've got two academic high schools that have joined this project and asked to come along. And then finally, we have um, industry groups that have come forward and said, we want to be part of this. We need industry training, and we're willing to take on some of that responsibility if you'll let us partner with you. We actually have uh, one of our many flags is up and flying and running. That's the Marine Systems Training Center, which is a collaboration with the Landing School, the Community College uh, up at Kennebec Valley, and the main Marine Trades Association that's really operating the curriculum of the program so we can be sure that we're fulfilling the needs, the workplace needs of the employers in the area. Great. And you're, you're um, moving, um, you hope you'll be moving to the Senate. I do hope indeed that right. I'll be moving to the Senate and, uh, and replacing my good colleague, Senator Savage, so we can keep a Chris in the Senate. So Great. Uh, <laughs> Great. <laughs> Representative Kaufman um, has been on Talk of the Towns before. Um, Ted, you're from Bar Harbor, work at College of the Atlantic. Talk a little bit about your um, kind of um, getting to the legislature and what your interests have, have been. Well, I have worked at the college for 30 years, and the college, uh, about 20 years ago, gave me the opportunity to work with a team of leaders from across the state, uh, business leaders, environmental organization leaders, uh, uh, academic uh, thinkers, and, um, and civic leaders, to talk about the relationship of Maine's environment and its economy. That um, we, there's so much common ground that we could um, spend time focusing on instead of our differences. And uh, back in the 80s, there were so many battles around dam construction and, and uh, various other projects. And, uh, and uh, wiser people realized that the future of the state really depended on our collaborating to find those areas in which we could work together. That was a great experience for me and an educational experience for me. And um, it uh, whet my appetite for conversations that, um, among a diverse group of thinkers, uh, well-intentioned, to make life better for Maine people in the long term. And uh, uh, when I had an opportunity to run, um, I took it and uh, haven't looked back. It's been a great experience. And having heard from Senator Savage and Representative Rector, you can understand why I've had such a good time over the last eight years uh, working on various uh, issues and opportunities for the state. And you, you've been um, in some leadership positions around um, some of that work. Talk about that and how that relates to your interests. Well, I chair the Natural Resources Committee and have for six years, um, and that committee has some jurisdiction over land use policies as well as the typical environmental concerns about clean air, clean water. Um, I also chaired something called the Community Preservation Advisory Committee, uh, which was shaped out of a piece of legislation I put in in my first term, um, with the support of others who were interested in how Maine was growing 
how that kind of growth, those patterns of development, were going to affect our economy in the long run. Curiously enough, as we were talking before the show, the way we develop, the extent of um, our commuting time as it's grown over the years and all of those, those, those patterns that we call sprawl loosely uh, are going to get very expensive at $4 a gallon fuel. Uh, so I've been lucky to be at the intersection of a, much discussion about how to revitalize our existing downtown centers, which were once very prosperous and, and energetic and vibrant. How do we bring those back and, and what kinds of policies can help do that? And um, we're talking lately about uh, Maine's brand through what the Brookings report of two years ago that was put together by Grow Smart Maine. It helped frame a discussion about what directions Maine might take to assure the prosperity that Chris is so optimistic about, and which is very nice to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's anyone who can help that happen, it's, it's, it's Chris. Um, so uh, I've been very fortunate to, to participate in a number of pieces of legislation. I've had a diverse portfolio, which has made it easy. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not just focused on one particular subject. It's been much more interesting to see the connections between these important um, um, issues. So. Mm. Well, I'll list our phone numbers because we may have listeners who are interested in our conversation about looking back, looking ahead, main towns and the legislature. Um, f folks, are feel, feel free to give us a call at 1-866-625-9378 or locally at 469-0500 and participate in this conversation here on Talk of the Towns. Our guests are Representative Chris Rector of Thomaston, Senator Christine Savage of Union, Union and Representative Ted Kaufman of Bar Harbor. Um, each of you probably have heard from, um, in, in, in Senator uh, Savage's, uh, you've been in the town setting, you've been uh, probably heard from people saying there's a fuzzy line between what the state does in its, its jurisdiction and what towns do. And we refer to that um, as home rule. Uh, Maine is a home rule state that, that reserves some um, uh, responsibilities to the town. Do you, do you see that in your everyday um, work as a legislature where, where people mm -hmm. representing towns or through the Maine Municipal Association, which is a statewide organization, say, you're stepping over our, our boundary somehow? Any examples of, of that kind of thing that uh, come to mind, that fuzzy boundary between towns and the state? Where do we begin? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I'll just say quickly that uh, uh, a couple of years ago I was looking in the legislative record from 1890. And I was so surprised to see how much time was spent uh, deciding whether the town of Bar Harbor should be able to rename a particular street in town uh, or, you know, a community could rename a pond, all, all these simple things. And it seemed like the state really micromanaged um, community affairs uh, much more than we could ever imagine today. And it was through the home rule provisions into the Constitution um, that delegated to the community certain responsibilities that uh, the state uh, was willing to, 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 to give up. But the state very clearly kept um, uh, its um, authority over certain areas, and one of those is land use. So, for example, the state, in, in, in protecting public health, safety, and welfare, determined uh, and put in statute that a quarter acre of land was required if you're going to dr drill a private well and have a septic tank on that piece of property. It was the minimum amount that would secure public health. Uh, but we didn't take away the town's right to require five-acre lot subdivisions if that's what they prefer. They couldn't go below a quarter acre for protection, mm -hmm. but they could do have flexibility to, to, to uh, design their community and ordinances as they saw fit. Mm 
Mm. Um, and it, it's at that place, that sort of nexus between the standards the state chooses to set uh, and wants enforced and where the community may or may not or the communities generally may or may find some – we may have some resistance mm. uh, to that. But there's also, I'll just quickly say, some collaborative efforts. Uh, Maine Municipal Association, for example, were very pleased – when our committee came up with some standards for junkyards and for, uh, uh, you know, used car junk dealers. Uh, and um, because it, was, it gets to be a very bit difficult, contentious struggle at a community level about, you know, Farmer Brown's 34 old vehicles out in the field and, um, and getting that cleaned up, putting some limits and boundaries. And so we had support from MMA for that. And we had support this year from MMA uh, on some standards around septic tank inspections during real estate transactions mm-hmm. to assure that our clam flats were not jeopardized by faulty systems. Um, so they meet with their policy committee, which I, I think is a fairly um, cautious group, their policy committee that is, but they endorsed, they could see the merits in having some standards statewide. Mm-hmm. So it's that, um, Chris, you have some examples. Well, no, I was just going to say I, I think the tension is actually a fairly healthy one, mm-hmm. and I think it's a kind of a natural one. In other words, there's there's some pushback sometimes when the state wants to step in, and that's probably appropriate because it makes us re- rethink and decide, is this really something we have to do? Is there really a benefit, or should we really uh, instead be allowing the, the communities to determine for themselves? But the examples Ted gave I, I think are terrific ones and I think represent sort of the greater good or the opportunity for the state to sort of take the heat off municipal officials mm-hmm. and uh, and make it a, a a bigger issue so that the uh, so that the the local folks don't have to be seen as a villain in enforcing what we all could recognize I think as generally beneficial policy because at the town level it becomes personal so That's to right. speak um, right. there are real people that are affected by this and sometimes it's hard to take action against your neighbor That's right, Senator well, Savage. Well, I'm I'm just thinking that because I've spent so many years mm-hmm. in municipal government. Every time a piece of legislation comes forward, I have, I have to thoroughly study that legislation and put on my other hat to say, what, how is this going to affect the municipalities in the state? And um, it isn't always easy when you know that it's good legislation, but it's also going to put a mandate on the municipalities. Mm-hmm. Right, and that comes the, to the issue of many years ago, unfunded mandates. Unfunded mandates, <laughs> right. but we've covered that, Ron, pretty yeah. well. Good. So what, what did you do two- about that? How, how did you handle that? Well, how the how legislature handles it, they get a two-thirds requirement, vote, yeah. requirement, and then they don't have to fund the mandate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. We, it's a high bar to to jump, to have a mandate on a community. And a mandate can be the cost of postage stamps required by the state for doing a mailing on some subject. It's not a lot of money can trigger mm-hmm. a mandate. Mm-hmm. I th- just recently, well, actually, last two years, we've been dealing with outdoor wood boilers. The federal government chose to not regulate th- these wood boilers, which is sort of surprising. And then the market was very strong and, and wants to be strong, uh, given the oil prices. But the standards of wood boilers um, range from very dirty burning systems that are sometimes purchased uh, well-intentioned by suburban dwellers, town dwellers, with neighbors all around them. And uh, so there have been some nuisance issues around that. It's been a struggle to get our arms around and set standards, uh, lengthy processes. Lots of people in the audience uh, 
uh, with their interests at, at stake. Um, but it was an example of how the municipalities in the MMA, I think, were perfectly happy to see the state set some uniform standards and, and a reasonable time frame in which we're going to implement those, rather than each municipality having to create their own ordinance and have local battles over that, which would be difficult for the industry in the first place and difficult to enforce for DEP and others in, in, in the second place. So, mm. so there are times where we work together very well. Senator Savage, because you dealt with transportation, there's, a, there's an intersection between the state's care of roads and transportation issues and towns. How did you see that kind of work out in your career? I've been really been involved quite heavily in transportation issues. Um, I, I think that back many years ago, <clears throat> the state, uh, like I said, the state um, passed some roads, they were state-maintained roads, passed them back to the municipalities. Um, and um, that that has created um, a situation where um, it wasn't an unfunded mandate at the time, mm -hmm. but, but today we so. would consider it so. Right. Um, but um, I, I've been able to work work collaboratively between the towns and their their highway systems, their problems, and the state. I think one thing that uh, we haven't been able to resolve, and that's uh, this um, eighty thousand pound uh, weight limit on the interstate system, because that's not a state; that's federal. But that's pushing a lot of those hundred thousand pound trucks through the smaller communities, right. and I don't know if we'll get that resolved, because that is a federal issue. Mm. But it, that is creating some problems. And as a matter of fact, going down through Camden, some of the big trucks going through Camden, I, I hear it all the time from small towns. We've got to do something to get those trucks off our, mm -hmm. off our local roads. And, and it's deteriorating the local roads. Right. Mm. Well, I'll remind listeners they can participate as well. Um, the toll-free number is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight or locally four six nine zero five zero zero. Um, Maine Municipal Association, as I said, um, is the statewide organization that represents municipalities. And in one of its uh, recent um, editions of the Maine Townsman, um, identified three broad areas where the legislature took action. Um, one was refinements to the school consolidation law, which has been very uh, controversial. Um, work to improve the foundation of, of jail consolidation. And uh, finally, uh, finding revenues to balance the supplemental budget for the state, um, not to fall back on property taxes. Are those? Would you agree with that summary that those are some of the the, the things that um, are most affected uh, towns? Uh, certainly, we certainly hear about that. Read letters to the newspaper even today about school consolidation is issues. I think that's the biggest issue right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting too. It's uh, it's been a hard one to resolve, and I'll tell you, I really feel for the for the uh, RSUs, the regional school unit consolidation committees that have been trying to meet and sort through. Uh, what's been a moving target for the entire time that they've been doing their sorting. And I think it becomes very difficult, very challenging for them. The legislature didn't act until the very last minute. And I think you're going to see additional 
refinements, if you will, of the mm -hmm. consolidation law come forward in the, in the next session of the legislature. I think the time frames that are in place are still too aggressive for many towns to meet because, because the target was moving for so long. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's tough. We've got, I've got communities back home, some of whom are in favor of the, uh, of the consolidation and, and feel good about it, others who really feel that the state is just uh, reaching out and taking control of their schools in a way that they don't want to, mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to be giving it up. And so mm -hmm. it's, uh, there's a terrific tension, I think, there. Well, um, both the school consolidation and um, uh, the jail issue came out of the same uh, basis, and you referred to it earlier. The, the Brookings report was That's saying right. we've got to be more efficient somehow. In mm -hmm. um, and, and these these two took slightly different courses, didn't they? Uh, jail consolidation yeah. didn't um, end up as a, as a broad mandate. There was a, as a collaborative effort. I don't think any of you were involved in that, but can you, can you comment about the difference between how school consolidation was, was um, mm. handled and, and what happened with jail consolidation? Did the governor learn something from one place and decided that maybe it would be better to, to bring people together and, and work this out? Any, any it's probably true that yeah. uh, the, 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 those who had an interest in this uh, were able to come around at the end of the day and start to collaborate and figure out how they were going to make it work or come up with some model that was acceptable. But in that case, you know, the constituents are the prisoners and the people who <laughs> manage them. There's a big difference within that in our schools, which yes. have really become our town centers, the mm -hmm. heart and soul of our communities. And uh, uh, I, I, I do, you know, it's easy for me in 2020 hindsight to suggest a, a different process was in order. Um, I'm not sure we're very good, and I'm not sure the public, frankly, are very good at having um, grown-up discussions about very serious issues that confront the state. Healthcare and education are costs that we cannot assume sustainably uh, at the current levels of increase in costs uh, over the next decade. The future legislatures are going to have terrible time dealing with this issue if we don't get some controls over those rising costs. How to do that, how to engage the public to recognize this is a problem that needs to be dealt with, or there will be consequences, yeah. uh, and, and that could include increases in taxes and that sort of thing. Uh, how to do that and what process to come to some agreements about how to proceed, over what time period, what methods, et cetera, are big question. And finally, I think um, as with the Sinclair Act, which was our last effort at trying to do something uh, and it was a largely Republican initiative at the time. And that was having back in the 50s? 1957, mm -hmm. a lot of study done in realizing that half of our high school graduates were not up to national standards, were not being prepared to live in the competitive uh, 20th century. And, um, but that Sinclair Act offered incentives to communities to consolidate, and, um, uh, and half the communities did, half didn't. But that incentive-based approach, there's still room for, and perhaps as Representative Rector mentioned, we can begin to look that in that direction in future legislatures. However, the problem's still real, and I think too often we don't address the issue that we do have a problem here. It's not, this isn't being done just to be irritating to the communities. <laughs> it's true, but I, I believe the incentive approach is a far more palatable approach to, uh, to Maine citizens appropriately. Yeah. Let's take a call. I'll remind listeners they can participate as well in this conversation about Maine towns and the Maine state legislature. Give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. But we have our first call. Go ahead with your uh, question or comment, please. Yes, good morning. My name is Laura, and I'm calling from Penobscot. And I listened to a very interesting show yesterday on the ID Act that the legislature said that we wouldn't uh, in, in, institute 
but now the governor has signed it into law. It's also at an economic cost of $71 million that will be responsible by the state of Maine to implement this. So this Real ID Act, although it sounds like it's a law that isn't supposed to happen, is now on the books to happen. And I'd like to know how you all stand on that. Thanks a lot for coming together so that we can have a forum. Great. Thank you, thank, thank you so much for your call. You're welcome. Bye. Senator Savage? <laughs> thank you. Um, Laura, I um, understand your concern, but um, we have not uh, accepted the real ID. What we did, and it came through my committee, so I'm familiar with what we did. We addressed the situation that we had to do something about our driver's licenses in order to um, protect the people who need to travel by plane or go into federal buildings because after a certain point, we couldn't, could not use our own driver's licenses uh, for that. Um, the bill that we passed, and it, it wasn't um, unanimous by any means, but it does require um, legal presence in the state to get a license. What had been happening is people were coming in from um, many from uh, out of state with uh, foreign country passports and they were coming to Maine because we were an easy state to get a driver's license. They were using false addresses uh, to get those driver's licenses and we had to put a stop to that um, and um, as well as the piece of legislation that just requires Maine residents to, to prove that they are a Maine resident. We have not acknowledged real ID. This is the only, um, only thing that we have done is to um, make our driver's licenses more protective, and that's, that's it. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm with you. We did vote not to acknowledge real ID. And that's still on the books. Mm -hmm. Representative Rector? And I had an opportunity to travel with the Consul General from Canada for uh, the man who represents uh, the Canadian government for New England, uh, along with a group of my colleagues up to, uh, to New Brunswick to discuss uh, cross-border issues and enhanced driver's licenses, which they're using in Washington State, that uh, allow you to prove your, <clears throat> excuse me, your residency in a way that allows you to travel with your driver's license across the border. You know, it's really important. Uh, communities like uh, Callis and St. Stephen have a very close relationship. There are many people who travel across that border many times a day. And if we required every family to have uh, passports for their family members, for instance, it's very costly now to get passports. We needed to come up with a way that was going to make that transparency easy, allow them to get across the border in a way that uh, people felt was providing appropriate protections, but allowing for, uh, for ease of travel and I think mm -hmm. we've accomplished that. Great. Let's move on to some of the things that you were involved in that do represent um, positive and perhaps um, <coughs> stickier um, uh, issues for towns. Each of you were probably involved in, in something. Uh, Representative Rector, I know that you were involved in uh, uh, building codes. Is that right? That's so correct. tell us a little bit about that issue and how um, you came to resolve it and how it may uh, affect um, municipalities in Maine. Uh, it's a very interesting issue because in my six six years, my three terms in the House, it's an issue that has arisen every term in some form or another, partly based on a desire for contractor licensing um, that is for consumer protection in uh, in contractor use. And we've been unable to come to contractor licensing because there hasn't been a standard by which all contractors, you know, to which they could be held. 
And so in the last uh, legislature, in the 122nd legislature, we passed a model building code that was statewide so that any community that was adopting a building code would adopt that code. That was a step in the right direction. And we were talking earlier about incrementalism and how the legislative process is one of moving uh, moving incrementally towards what uh, some positive outcome and giving you a chance, I think, to test the waters and see what works and what doesn't and go back and adjust. It's frustrating, I know, to the public sometimes, but I think it's a system that ultimately works fairly well. And you say incrementalism. That's over a period of years, not years. Over, a, over a session. That's correct. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and you need to see what the reaction is and how things fit together and, and where you need to make adjustments. And I, we're, we continue to do that. Uh, this year, we ended up with a statewide building code being passed with some support from a wide range of groups, including contractors and some code officers. And some the main municipal association was very was willing to actually give up home rule on the on the uh, on the building code itself. They were concerned about mandatory enforcement. Ultimately mandatory enforcement was part of the uh, part of the bill that passed for communities above a size of two thousand. There is not mandatory enforcement for a town smaller than that. And I think um, overall it provides a standard by which people are going to be able to understand what uh, a correctly built building is in the state and provide protection for consumers. Mm -hmm. It will be phased in over a period of time. There's a phase-in period. It's going to be 2012, I think, before it's ultimately fully phased in. But it also provides us a basis to uh, go on and make sure – that um, consumers are protected in a way that's meaningful, I think, around the state. Mm-hmm. And that, that uh, bill also in- included an energy code. It did. And Say uh, a little bit more about that. Well, energy, uh, an energy code in terms of setting a minimum standard for, for home construction. There was, uh, I mean, I'll be honest and say there was some heartburn among some of our colleagues about that uh, energy code being incorporated because there's no question it will add a modest cost to any new construction if you chose not to do that. I think now that we're at $4.40 cent a gallon oil, uh, the payback for that modest cost increase is probably a year or two years or less. Mm-hmm. And so under the circumstances, I think the case becomes much stronger for the fact that that should be, uh, should be a portion of the code. Mm-hmm. Representative Kaufman, you were involved in uh, various things, uh, including uh, um, historic uh, tax credit. Tell right. us a little bit about right. that issue and how that might impact municipalities. Well, I wanted to just preface my remarks by commenting on uh, Representative Rector's uh, work on the building codes. It's part of that is a, certainly a consumer protection initiative, but part of that is to create a better business climate in That's Maine, right. to be more uh, uh, in, inviting to developers who want to work in a community and know, have some consistency right. that the rules are the same from town to town, etc. That's terribly important. We heard that and uh, responded to it, and it's one of many things we've been trying to do to to level that playing field and to make the state Bring it up to date with our, our competing states. It was actually suggested that this will reduce costs uh, mm-hmm. ultimately for uh, uh, in terms of contracting because it uh, it will provide a, a you know a, a level playing field, but one that's predictable. I yeah. think predictability is yeah. very important. Yeah, and part of that building code includes uh, something called the existing building code. So we have new building standards, and then we have within the code a separate subcode that addresses how do you renovate an older building, hmm. not necessarily a historic building, but a, at least an older building, an already built building, and renovate it and improve it for continued use and to keep it in good shape. That becomes very expensive. If it's a 30-year-old building, it's not necessarily in materials or structural 
uh, uh, design going to meet a, a modern building code standard. So you need, if you're going to want those buildings renovated, if you want developers to make that investment, you've got to make it more streamlined to get that job done. So um, I was interested years ago, too, in the effect of um, our current uh, tax credit uh, for historic buildings, uh, uh, an incentive to developers to take on historic. These are buildings that have had to go through the federal register process. So these aren't just old. They're old and important to the communities and meet certain criteria. And our our, um, our tax credit had become moribund. It just wasn't functioning well. We weren't seeing much activity there. And yet Maine is endowed with millions of square feet of handsome mill building space, beautifully brick-built structures, with huge beams in them and whatnot. We're all familiar with that, as well as lovely, charming downtown buildings, old sure. banks and old schools and what have you, many of which are underutilized, sometimes boarded up. They become a liability to the community. They're a tax uh, problem. They don't generate revenue. They aren't good for their neighbors. They're not good for the streetscape. But on the other hand, we have a, an affordable housing need in the state. We're trying to attract young people, young professionals. And we looked at this program for incentives for rehabilitation of historic buildings, brought together developers, national experts, historic preservation people. They spent months looking at this code and said, well, if you were designing an optimal code, what would it look like? And that became the bill. We developed a strong coalition around it, um, and it was one of the most exciting, rewarding things that I was able to do in the legislature with my colleagues to see this move through and get, get passage with enthusiasm, I think, in mm -hmm. both bodies very bipartisan um, effort, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing the results of this now because we've created enough incentive that we should see substantial investments. We're talking tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars a year, 65 to 100 million a year in new investment in these older buildings, and they're, and they're primarily in our downtowns. Lastly, there, we built into this a small projects provision, 50 to $250,000 scale projects for older buildings in our downtowns, facelifting and improvement in, to spruce up our downtown. So it's innovative. I think it'll be a national model. Maine often has been coming up, perhaps because of Representative Rector's point about incrementalism and taking it one step at a time. We do some very innovative work. Mm. So, so um, a building has to be registered as historic right. before you can yeah. apply for the credit. The state planning office does does that function, mm -hmm. and uh, and um, it's it's pretty well known how to go through that process. It's just it hasn't been rewarding to do so because the cost of taking on those buildings is about 25% more than building a brand-new building. Mm -hmm. So there's just not – there's too many risks in, incurred. But if you have the a generous tax credit program and an extra bonus if you're building affordable housing of a certain percentage of the space uh, – we expect we're hearing from big big developers, major developers, and small scale developers that, that they're going to jump in on this this new marketplace. Great. Before we turn to Senator Savage, I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to talk of the towns. We're talking about the actions of the Maine legislature in their last session and their effects on Maine towns. In the studio with us, we have Representative Ted Kaufman, you've just heard from from Bar Harbor. Representative Chris Rector from Thomaston, and Senator Christine Savage. You can give us a call if you'd like to participate at 1-866-625-9378 or locally at 469-0500. Uh, Senator Savage, you were involved in a number of transportation issues probably this last session and, and maybe some other things. So, yeah, most, Mostly transportation issues, and, and uh, the biggest um, issue that we've tried to address is a, a sustainable source of revenue for um, the highway system. 
We operate now with the gasoline tax, and many people out there think, well, the gasoline, you know, gasoline's gone up to $4.18 a gallon, so why isn't there enough money? The problem is um, the tax doesn't go up with the cost of <laughs> So it's based the on the of number of gallons, the number not of on gallons. the cost. That's correct, and the number of gallons being used is, <laughs> is diminishing Maybe. rapidly. Right. Uh, we've been seeing that over the last two years, and, and uh, basically um, to a point where the only way we're going to do any of these capital projects is by um, fund, uh, mm. funding them through bonding. Uh, we did, uh, at one of the very last things we did, um, was uh, to uh, a bill to keep bridges safe and roads passable, and that's uh, um, acknowledging that we need more than what the usual annual bonding is. Uh, we did do a revenue bond. We'll do a $160 million revenue bond over a period of four years. It will be paid for through increased registration fees and title fees. Those will go into effect, I believe, September 1st, uh, an additional $10 on registration, additional uh, $10, I believe, on title fees. But it's the people who are using the highway system will be paying for the highway system. Mm -hmm. So that's a, um, a one step in the process of making kind of um, the long-term picture um, so that there's a sustainable source of, that, of funding. That's right. Mm -hmm. And and we're looking at well, the state. There's over 2,700 bridges in the state of Maine that are under the uh, DOT uh, jurisdiction, and most of them are over 50 years old. Mm -hmm. And 50 years is the normal life expectancy mm -hmm. for bridges. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we've got a we've got a series, and, and none of them are ready to. Um, uh, fall in, right. if you will, like uh, what happened out west, but we still have to uh, maintain those bridges. And we did, the governor did uh, request a, an inspection of all the bridges last after that serious accident. The uh, uh, crew went out um, and inspected every bridge in the state and come up with a report to us. And there are some of them that are um, in serious condition. Some of them are okay, mm. but we have to... We, we can't just go $15 million bond a year right. because it just doesn't do it. Well, not those of us who live in this area, and you had to come across that bridge to, um, today, a wonderful new bridge, but that, was, that came out of somebody's pocket, didn't it? Exactly, and right. it's like I said before we came in here. Uh, we, have, we always are reactive mm. and not proactive, and I think by having this inspection team going out and analyzing all the bridges, I think we can become more proactive. Great. We have another caller. I'll list our phone numbers one more time, 1-866-625-9378. We have a caller. Go ahead with your question or comment, uh, please. Tell us where you're calling from, if you would. Hi, Talk of the Town. Uh, it's Jacob Null. I'm calling from Bar Harbor, Maine. Uh, back in 1987, Ted Kaufman was my advisor when I was a freshman in college. I uh, voted for Ted many a times. I know him well, and um, I know our uh, our island school communities put together a lot of money to uh, fight the consolidation bill in Augusta, and I had a question for Ted um, directly. I was curious as to what confusion led up to you, Ted, missing one of the most important votes in our island's history? Would you care to answer that, please, Ted? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to answer it. Um, actually, that vote, while it was important, um, lost by several votes um, and didn't win in a sense. 
either, so it, it wasn't the, the deciding vote. But in any case, uh, I didn't know that was coming up on the calendar that day. I was two floors down at a press conference uh, and leading the press conference with a number of other speakers, and I heard the bell ring, and I thought, I wonder why it's ringing so long, and I started running for the stairs and up the first flight, up the second flight, and then the bell stopped uh, sooner than usual. So it's one of those things that you don't see happen to yourself very often if you're attentive, as I usually am, but in any case, that's what happened. Um, the other side of this story, though, is that um, your representative uh, brought together the commissioner and his staff uh, and leaders from Mount Desert Island in the majority office uh, in the last few days of session to recraft that consolidation bill to provide a great deal more flexibility. And if you talk to your local leaders in education, you'll find out that we came out with a very good bill at the end of the day in terms of our district. Uh, and um, I think they're satisfied that that uh, consolidation is, is not going to hurt education on Mount Desert Island. Great. No, I, I believe you're right on that, and I, I thank you for your explanation. All I had gotten was tidbits out of the newspaper, and I think myself and the listeners uh, would thank you for, uh, for elaborating on that. Well, thank you, Jake, and I'd be happy to be your advisor again. You bet. All right. Hey, thanks, Talk of the Town. Great show. I'll uh, continue mowing and listening through my earphones. <laughs> Great. Thanks for that call. We do have another call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hello? Yes, go ahead, okay. please. This is Skip. I'm in Belfast. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, first, I want to thank you for having the program and having those le legislators willing to be on there and give their point of view. Uh, I'm just going to uh, pick up one thing that I have a lot of problems with, and I can't get even my local legislators to respond to it, and <clears throat> that's to do with, I'm talking about motorcycles. Nothing wrong with them. They're okay. But at least a third of those motorcycles out there, there are individuals on them that deliberately make a lot of noise. And why, why does the state allow this to happen. Uh, there's no need for this noise. It, my car, I cannot get it uh, uh, put on the road with a noisy muffler, but uh, these motorcycles probably have been uh, manipulated, so they do make noise, and we have to put up with them. Well, Any comment, please? Well, thank you for your call, and, and I think uh, rep uh, excuse me, Senator Savage uh, may have some history around that issue. Senator Savage? Uh, Skip, uh, yes, I, I, do, um, I do know what you're saying because they go through my town as well. We did have legislation before Transportation Committee a few years ago, and uh, there are some regulations on those souped-up motorcycles, those noisy ones, but I think... A lot of it is in um, enforcement, and I think maybe law enforcement uh, concentrating more on other issues and not the motorcycles that are going through town. Uh, I would suggest that maybe you talk with your law enforcement and have them check the law on what is allowed on motorcycles. But by the time they zip through Belfast, they're not going to catch them. <laughs> um, but I would talk to your local law enforcement because there is there there are laws on the book, and. Um, Maybe they should look into that. Great. Thank you, Senator Savage, and thank you for our, your, that call. I do b believe we have another call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, good morning. Would that be me? Yes, that's you. Thank uh, you. This is Richard from uh, Brooks and Rockport and various other uh, points up and down the coast. 
Uh, greetings to Ted. He wouldn't remember me, but from days of COA, I was involved in a certain orchid business and spent a lot of time with the late Walter Lytton. Oh, really? Psychology. And uh, maybe we'll chat sometime. My, I have 101 questions, but the one that comes to mind mostly is about marketing Maine's own water, and I wonder why those of my children who are at uh, Orono studying engineering uh, haul home water in bottles with the University of Maine Alumni Association label on it, and yet the water is uh, processed and bottled and shipped from New Hampshire. And uh, <clears throat> mm. I'll a bunch of related issues, but say that in my spare time, I commute to Cambridge every week, where for 20 years I've run an organization at MIT that helps uh, students, staff, alumni, and uh, professors and so forth start up new businesses, mostly growth businesses. I fail to understand why our university system up here doesn't have uh, students creating from scratch an in-state uh, water business of its own, and of course put it in glass <laughs> and and keep it uh, keep it uh, keep it uh, flowing toward the coast. I think to sell to the Turons, <laughs> and that and that's my uh, question and commentary. Thanks, yeah, thank and uh, we'll chat with you sometime, Ted. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for your call. Any comments about the, the opportunities that might exist in terms of Maine's water resources? Well, all I can say is the, the water industry, I think, is a highly capital-intensive industry when you get into the bottling of water. So that probably is one of the reasons we've, we've been hesitant. I will say the University of Maine has a new center of innovation where they're, uh, uh, that the, they've just started that really is bringing together entrepreneurs and is there specifically to foster entrepreneurism mm -hmm. among their students. And I think some of the most promising new developments technologically in the state have have developed from uh, research and development and uh, implementation and commercialization of projects that have come through the University of Maine system. Right. I'll just well, mention also that uh, our committee came up with um, some new procedures for how we evaluate proposals and permitting of new drinking water, uh, bottled drinking water um, uh, businesses because we're seeing them spring up. It's profitable. Okay. Since I didn't mean that as a pun, the no. spring up part. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but Town of Freedom, for example, there was some upset mm -hmm. there because uh, people are worried about draining down the aquifer, and particularly in a granite granite area. But the most significant surprising bill for me related to water was the the potential risk to many public drinking water wells, which had no specific protections under law in terms of the activities that could, could occur around the catch basin of those wells. And we spent some time over a year studying that issue and finally passed legislation this year that puts in modest but meaningful restrictions on oil storage, for example, mm -hmm. near those wells and requiring double tanks for heating uh, oil storage around when you're in the, in the proximity of a public drinking water supply. Um, so, well, Let's take another call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, uh, this is Steve calling from Penobscot, and I have a question for the legislatures in this time of this budget crunch and, uh, and all the price of gas and it's going way up. There's one really wasteful program that will be coming up in another couple of months, and I've tried to get the ear of you guys uh, before to, to look into this, but I was wondering what you might be doing about um, helicopter flyovers, because I heard that, um, that the helicopter, just to be up in the air looking for... Um, plants that they cost $10,000 an hour. 
to run that thing on gas and to run the infrastructure on gas. Now, this seems like a very, and that was before the price of gas went up to what it's at now. So you're referring to marijuana plants? Yes. I see. Um, I guess I shouldn't have been, so I should have been straight up with it. Yeah, marijuana plants, a crop that's grown all over here. Um, but the $10,000 price tag in this budget crunch, I'm just wondering what you guys could do to take away the money for the gas. That's all I want to say. <laughs> okay. I don't, you don't have to say you're going to legalize it. You're not going to have to say you're going to do this. Take away the money for the gas. We could have hang gliders. <laughs> yeah, it's really intrusive, and, um, and it's really nerve-wracking to all the animals and other things and other farmers who are around here that aren't growing that. Um, and so I just, to, I just want to put that out there. I really would like to see some legislation legislation to just take away the money for the gas. Okay, thanks, thanks. For, your, for your call. I don't think we've got comments, um, but we do have another call. Let's uh, take that call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, my name is Alan from Monroe, and I would, uh, it's more a comment. Um, I'm chairman of a wireless um, committee here in Monroe, and we're trying to get um, wireless mobile communications up to date here in Monroe. And we've been working with the university to do this. Um, they have a plan for what's called a BYWISE center, and unfortunately the state has turned this down. In Monroe, we have 32 small businesses that provide a lot of income to people in this town. And businesses are not doing well because we are not allowed to compete globally because we do not have communications. Now, the state set up the Connect Me Authority, which is actually hand-in-hand -hand with the telecommunications corporations, and it seems as if they are trying to prevent us from getting connected. The saddest part of this is that we have 10 households here in our town that do not have a phone. They cannot call 911. We look at phone and communications as a public utility, and yet it's not being supplied to the public. And I think we're getting raked over the coals for our prices. And I really hope that the state state will look into the future and support us small business people who are trying to make a living in the state and contribute to taxes, but are handicapped by our lack of high-speed access to the Internet. Well, thanks for that um, very passionate and, and clear uh, point of view. We'll get some comments from our, our guests here in the studio. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Uh, Representative Rector, I think you have perhaps some comments there. Well, I think uh, Alan's hit on something that's, uh, that really is one of the key infrastructure elements uh, in the state that we need to be addressing. And uh, I would, you know, share his disappointment, actually, in how the Connect Me Authority has been able to or unable to really uh, move as effectively or as quickly as I think we need to be moving. Uh, in the old days, uh, roads and bridges were really our infrastructure for commerce. And today, high-speed Internet is absolutely as critically, in some cases, even more critical as, a, uh, as an infrastructure element. Um, I've worked with uh, Jackson Labs and the university trying to uh, uh, increase speed connections and, uh, and uh, bandwidth so that uh, they can be doing their most effective research and sharing that uh, outside, of, outside of Maine and on a, on a wider basis. I think... The technology is changing. I think the awareness of that issue is, uh, is key. As far as um, 
phone access for folks with no 911 numbers. I have no idea what the cell phone uh, connectivity might be in Monroe, but I do know that um, many agencies provide cell phones to people who don't have cell phone coverage, but if you just have a charged battery and a cell phone, you can always dial 911 and get uh, and get service. So perhaps they can find uh, cell phones maybe through their community action uh, agency and at least have that emergency access because that absolutely is critical. Great. Thanks for that comment. Uh, we're about time to end, but I want to give you um, a chance to, to give put your um, blue sky um, future glasses on and say, what do you think is ahead? Um, as um, two of you are not going back to the legislature, one hopes to go back to the legislature um, in November. Um, what's ahead for the legislature and and town issues? You've talked about energy. What what else? Um, you know, or do you want to comment about that? What what's ahead? Um, I'm, I'm hoping what will be ahead, and I had hoped that I would see this happen in my tenure as tax reform. Uh, the over-reliance on property taxes uh, is, is just too much of a burden. We all know that. We, uh, we need to broaden our sales tax, but that's a very difficult thing to do because those who will be taxed will feel like they can't compete anymore, whether that's a ski lift ticket or a haircut. Uh, nevertheless, all the experts, nonpartisan, have told us Maine needs and is long overdue in reforming its tax system uh, to make it more stable, less volatile, uh, and uh, more predictable and taking some of that burden off of uh, property owners, putting it more on the tourists and, and uh, others. Great. Uh, Senator Savage, thoughts about the, the future? Well, I, I have to agree with Ted. I also would like to see uh, in the future, and, and there's a study being done to develop another way of funding the highway system, and uh, we're looking at uh, the possibility of a part gasoline tax, part sales tax, um, then uh, it would be more sustainable. Mm. That's what I'd like to see in the near future. But I agree with Ted, a tax reform is one of the, one of the number one items that it's going to be addressed. It'll have to be. Great. And Representative Rector. Again, I'd agree, too, that uh, reducing our income tax burden, I think, in particular, is uh, is necessary. I also think a continued uh, commitment to research and development and innovation and how to make the innovation economy work for Maine is critically important. I think we've begun on a sustainable road there. We've passed some important bonds, and I think uh, continuing that effort really is beginning to bear fruit. The university's produced some terrific things. The Mark V that Hodgson Yachts is doing down mm-hmm. on the coast is really a wonderful example of the kind of success that our sustained investment can bring. Great. Well, I want to thank each of you uh, for being here, and I do hope that um, your various careers um, are successful. I wish more people would have the chance to engage with you as we have today, because then they'd understand how important our citizen legislature really is to the state of Maine. that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us on the second and fourth Friday at this time for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Representative Chris Repter of Thomaston, Senator Christine Savage of Union, and Representative Ted Kaufman of Bar Harbor. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions. Thanks to our underwriters, and thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. Stay tuned for On the Wing. This is your host, Ron Beard, wishing you a good morning.